I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Hello, hello. This is me back in the real world. I know some of you who follow me on social media know that I have been away from the world. I took 50 days alone in nature. And oh my God, I cannot recommend this enough. I'll probably record a separate episode to tell you about that experience, but uh, it really, really is part of who we are as humans. We really need the time alone. Uh, wrote 140 pages just for everyone to know. And, um, I, when I, when I was coming back, I decided to uh, stay a little bit away from the hustle and the bustle. So I'm back uh, in London for 10 days. And instead of booking my typical place in Notting Hill, which I absolutely love, I decided to book a uh, place further away and London seems to be bigger in reality than what it is on the map. So it is literally an hour and a half drive for the guest that is joining me today, who happens to be like the biggest authority on a two and a half trillion dollar industry very generously decides to drive all the way here to spend the time with me here. So my guest I met for the first time in Notting Hill. Uh, it was a generous day from London, so it wasn't raining. I was sitting outside uh, in a cafe with my dear friend, Simon Salter. Simon knows a lot of people, walks by this gentleman who was elegantly, but not arrogantly dressed. He was rushing, so we chatted quickly for five, 10 minutes. And I said, that's a person I really want to get to know. Clearly super intelligent, uh, very successful, but also let's say humble in a very, very unusual way for the successes that he has achieved in life. Imran Ahmed is the CEO, founder, and editor-in-chief of the business of fashion, uh, which he started in 2007 unlike what life was telling him to be. He was a successful consultant at McKinsey, Harvard business graduate, MBA graduate, very driven, if you want, in the hyper-masculine world of consultancy and analysis. And yeah, he started to write about fashion from his sofa in London uh, and uh, very quickly had tens of thousands of followers reading his work because he came to an industry that needed to be looked at differently at a time where the industry was really investigating its identity uh, and how it's positioned in life, if you want. And uh, the fashion industry listened. Imran got funded, I think in 2013 was the first round, Index Ventures, and then Felix Capital gave him a series A in uh, 2015, in 2019, he was funded by the Financial Times or they ran the, the round. And now the business of fashion is probably one of the most influential authorities on the topic. I'm gonna have to use my phone to tell you the titles, if you want. So he was awarded an MBE. This is called the Member of the Order of the British Empire. Every title in the UK is quite fancy for the services in the fashion industry in 2018 by the late 
Queen Elizabeth II. Imran was awarded an honorary doctorate from Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design. He was named the Fast Companies on the annual list of the most creative people in business. What a title. Why doesn't anyone call me anything? British GQ called him uh, one of the most influential 100 men in Britain. Indian GQ put him on the list of the most influential 50 global Indians and Wired a magazine nominated him on the list of the 100 most influential figures in Britain's digital economy. None of that matters. I don't know how to tell you that. Imran moved to Canada in his mom's belly when he was minus four months years old from Kenya with an Indian origin. So he's a brownie like me. And he went through life resisting what life was telling him to be. He is a gay Muslim man in the fashion industry, a British Canadian from an Indian origin, and he stands for whichever way, way you want to look at it. He's either one of a kind, like there is one Imran in the world, or he has part of each and every one of us in him. And I think this is what really attracted me to get to know this person. Because when you're spending time with Imran, you find a lot of, ooh, I did not know that. Because of the story and how it evolved, I think you're in for a conversation that is truly from the heart and truly something that you may have been thinking about. Long intro, Imran. Thank you so much for driving all the way. I'm honored. Um, not just to talk to you, but also, is this your first conversation after your 50 days? Oh, yes. <laughs> my, my speech processor is a little broken, believe it or not. Well, I'll take, <laughs> it, I'll take it easy on you. But, you know, having, having done a silent retreat myself, I know that first conversation it's... after being on your own for a long time is, is an important one. So I'm looking forward to it. I really want to go to that topic in a bit, but because I have to admit to you, I think we need more silence in life. And I think silence was a, a pivotal moment in your life too. But I have to start with what I, you know, I'm not a fashion person. I mean, I wore my better black t-shirt today, but that's as far as I go, honestly. And I don't understand. I honestly don't understand. What is fashion? Why? Why? I think is the question. Why is fashion? Why is it for a, an engineer's utilitarian mind like mine? Why does it matter how I look, not the function of what I'm wearing? Yeah, so I actually think we're all fashion people. And I think the notion that maybe the rest of the world outside those of us who are kind of affiliated or working in the fashion industry have about the fashion business is that it's this kind of secluded, insular, elitist, cut off world that's only relevant to certain people who want to wear outlandish outfits. But the way I think about fashion is actually it's, it's the most democratic form of self-expression of who we are. You know, what we wear says a lot about who we are. It says the tribes we belong to, the people we aspire to be, the brands that we want to affiliate with, the work that we do every day. And so your black t-shirt might say a lot about who you are because maybe <laughs> Does it? maybe maybe <laughs> maybe you like black t-shirts for a certain reason. Maybe it's because, you know, someone like Steve Jobs, who's a very busy guy, was known for wearing these black 
isimeyaki turtlenecks and jeans all the time. And what that said about him, perhaps, was that he had a good eye or taste in design, because Isimiyaki, who recently passed away, is one of the finest you know, designers in history. But it also maybe said to him that Steve Jobs was such a busy guy, he didn't want to decide what he had to wear every day. So he adopted a kind of uniform you know, for other people. Uniform, that's such an interesting choice of word. Okay. So yeah. it's like something, you know, the way I think about fashion is that, you know, we all say something about who we are through what we wear. And sometimes it might not be a super conscious decision mm. about what we want to say, but essentially we're all giving a signal to people in the world. You know, the way we walk into a room, the way we show up for a job interview, the way we dress to meet our partner's parents for the first time or for a first date. We all make these little decisions and they add up to this sense of self-expression. And in that way, it's the most democratic, creative output in the world because everyone has to do it every day. It's interesting that you say it this way because you know, in a way, the reason I choose the way I dress is because of my lifestyle. So I, I travel all the time. My entire life is simplified into one suitcase. And honestly, a, a single color t-shirt and jeans is like you said about Steve Jobs, it's a very, very efficient way of making sure that I'm always dressed in something clean and neat and, and nice to wear, but it's not that much of an effort if you want. And in an interesting way, I think that the prioritization for me of I need that ease and simplicity in life is probably the way I want to show up in the world. It's interesting that you say it's also fashion to dress this way. Everything is fashion. Everyone has this kind of I think the word fashion is loaded with so many assumptions mm. uh, and stereotypes and maybe misconceptions and maybe a little bit of judgment. <laughs> yes. And you know, one of my roles in my in my work now is not just to speak to people who work in the fashion industry about fashion, but also to help people who work outside the fashion industry to understand a little bit about how this industry works yeah. and how it really touches every single one of us. Can I ask you, so where is the line between fashion being a form of self-expression and fashion being a form of ego? In an interesting way, I think the reason for the stereotype is how the richer people, if you want, will always wear, in all honesty, quite ridiculous things from fashion designers that are just expensive. In my eyes, they're not even pretty. But that basically becomes sort of an, it comes across as, okay, look at me, I've made it. Yeah. Where is that line? Yeah, so it's a very good question because I think in some cases, yes, when people have reached a certain level of financial or economic success, one of the first things they do is, is they, go out to try to yeah. convey that. But if you talk and meet the richest people, yeah, they're rich for a I long time. I know that for sure. They dress more like you. That's so there's, the way I think of it is it's actually kind of, someone once described it to me as a discernment curve, mm. right? When it comes to engaging with the luxury end of fashion, you go through this curve where your first goal is to wear logos and brands and instantly identifiable labels that other people will recognize as, well, that's expensive. So that person must be wealthy or mm. rich or mm. successful. But over time, I think wealthy people actually understand and want not to be recognized for their wealth. They actually 
want to be kind of disappear more into the background because they don't want to draw attention to themselves. It's the nouveau riche or, you know, the people who are just coming into their financial success that may operate that way. And you see that curve everywhere in the world, like 10 or 15, 20 years ago, when the luxury fashion industry first entered China, you know, the things that sold were logo bags from Louis Vuitton and other big luxury brands that had this instantly recognizable imprint or aesthetic. And then over time, those same people now, 15, 20 years later, are looking for things that are one of a kind, made in like beautiful ways, which are a bit more discreet, which don't have logos that scream on it. And you you might still have like the you know, Chinese and third tier cities that are coming into wealth for the first time that are in the early part of that discernment curve. But people who've been around the block a bit, they've developed a level of discernment and taste that wants them to engage with, you know, fashion in a different way. A lot of Chinese are now, you know, the most kind of advanced Chinese customers. They want to buy Chinese designers. Interesting. They want to show a connection to their national heritage and identity. Mm. And so all of this is just a further example of how we use fashion to express who we are. I live that clearly with cars. I'm a, a serious geek in my life in general. I made a couple of cars myself. I love that concept of the beauty of the art of the car mixed with the engineering. And I think for a very long time, you know, when I was still climbing the ladder, I always bought a car that was flashy. Right. Sort of in an interesting way, trying to tell others, you know, look at me, I'm successful. Right. But once I got there and I really need, did not need the car to prove anything to myself, I actually remember vividly that the, that the worst part of the experience of, of restoring a beautiful car or whatever was to be seen in it. I just didn't want that bit. I didn't want to be looked at as someone who's spending a bit of money on a car. Right. And I think the reality is, you know, among my very, very rich friends, as you rightly said, what ends up happening is that very quickly when you don't need the reassurance to yourself anymore that you're successful, you really don't need a brand anymore or a, you want to be the person that you are. And I think being the person that you are is probably the story of your life, isn't it? Or the struggle that of my life. <laughs> yeah, struggling. but it's like, you know, struggling to just be myself and be happy with that. Can I ask if you are now? Do you feel that you're closer to being yourself now? I mean, we're, go we're going to go through the story, if you don't mind, because it's so inspiring. But do you believe you've arrived somewhere now? I think it'll always be a journey. But I'm. what I can say is I'm closer to being my full, true, authentic self now than I have ever been in my life thus far. And I think, I hope that I will continue as my life goes on to, to get even closer to that. Okay. So defining moments. I'm a bit biased here because I know your story. So I'm going to sometimes push you in certain directions because I want to dig out certain stories, but let's start from the beginning, right? Highly educated, very committed parents leaving from Kenya to Calgary. Was it in Canada? You were minus four months old and then your life begins in the cold. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> what were the defining moments for Imran, the child? What a good question. I guess I've never been asked that question before. That's why I, I am a good podcaster. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> I think in grade two, actually, no, maybe before that, 
in kindergarten, after a few months at school, I had to leave. Did you? Because I got bullied so much at school. Oof. And my mom was a school teacher mm. in Calgary. Mm. And um, I think because her school was near my school, we started out of me going to her school. And I got bullied so badly in that school that after a few months, I had to leave. And they put me in another school uh, that was closer to home. And I think, I can't even remember what the bullying was. Something to do with my ethnicity or my size. I was always very small. Uh, I still am small, um, which is another kind of defining you know, element of who I am and being comfortable with that. But I think I found my own. And then a few years later in that new school, they came to my parents and said, we want him to take an IQ test. Hmm. And so I remember going into this little room and literally looking at what I now know to be like Rorschach mm. drawings. And my parents never told me what the result was because they didn't want me to know. <laughs> Clever. I, I still don't know. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know mine either. Actually. What they told me was... Focus there. <laughs> You're good in that bit. <laughs> well, no, what they said was actually they wanted to put me in a, in a school for gifted children. It was called the Oakley Center in Calgary. And my mom, I mean, I will always credit her for this. You know, I think sometimes parents would hear that from their teachers and they would jump on it. Oh, my child is special. So I need to send my child to a special school. So my child can become even more special. But I think having been a teacher herself, my mom has told me that what she wanted was she didn't want me to be in a place that was special. She wanted me to be in a place that was real. Because the risk with sending kids into these schools with all these other, in quotation marks, special gifted children is that you only get to know people like that. And the world isn't, the world is filled with more diversity and more variety and more richness than that. So my mom kept me in that school. Mm. And so I think the other thing that happened a few years later is I think my teacher in grade five went to my parents and said, okay, you need to get him trained. You need to get his voice trained. And my parents having been immigrants from Kenya didn't really understand what they meant. My dad, you know, he used to play a musical instrument, Indian musical instrument called a harmonium. He used to play it at home and sing it. He had a, a stunning mm. voice, mm. all self-trained. So when they said this, they didn't really understand what it meant. They basically wanted me to go to a vocal coach and in and, and addition to be part of a, a choir. So in, in grade five, I auditioned for a boys choir, the Calgary Boys Choir, and I, I got rejected. And then the next year, I auditioned again and I got in. And literally, we would sing wearing these robes. It was like very proper. Mm. And we would sing like, like this. And we would sing like classical music, madrigal music. You know, it was all very, you know, Christian, actually. It was not very... Indian or brown, not like the songs that like, like the guzzles or songs that my dad was singing at home. But you know, it was all about, you know, getting my voice trained. And I think I, I mentioned all three of those things now because I, you know, as I said, no one's ever asked me that. But I think 
if you pinpoint on all of those things, they're themes that have continued in my life. I was like supposedly a gifted child in terms of like my academics and analytics and academic ability. I was also very creative. Yeah. You know, I had some creative talent that could be nurtured and developed. And then also I was different. And, you know, that being different in a school, which was, you know, if you look at my grade one picture from Lake Bonavista Elementary School, there's no one else yeah. who's a person of color. There's, you know, it's, it's just me. So like that, that, that encapsulates a lot of the experiences that I've had in fact, for the rest of my life. So I, I guess that's the first set of defining moments. Different is a different is a very interesting word because I don't know if it's a positive or a negative. I mean, the world the world wants us all to to be the same, right? To don't stand out too much. You know, we don't get you. It, you confuse us when you do, or and sadly, you you repel us. You know, we don't want you to be here when you look different, or you behave different, or you think different. I I struggled with difference my whole life. Honestly, I mean, even today, my hyper introverted reality, which I know most people don't can't even imagine, because I spend. 90% of my year immersed in people, whether that's on social media or in real life. But yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if you leave me alone, that 40, 50 days of uh, isolation would extend to 40, 50 years. Like I could literally spend the rest of my life alone. And I think that idea of difference, even today as a successful businessman for many years and, you know, doing what I do re reasonably well, okay, and okay to nowadays, I still struggle with that. It's like, you know, you're not the same like everyone. And in an interesting way, it sort of either requires you to tone it down a little mm. or to explain it. It's like, hey, you know, the reason why I don't want to go to the wear your dancing shoes party that my friend is actually, it's actually tonight, uh, is I'm an introvert. I don't enjoy wear your dancing shoes party. And it seems that this theme of difference sort of attacked you your whole life, right? Yeah, and I think to comment on your first point, which is that difference or diff being different is a, has a negative connotation. I think back then in my mind it did. I think my arc over life, yeah, not just difference as it pertains to myself, but difference as it pertains to everybody is that difference is amazing. Unbelievable, right? But it's taken me 47 years. You're 47? Yeah. You're doing well, my friend. Thank you. Okay, people who, who are not watching the video, watch the video. Yeah, 47, very impressive. Go, Thank you, keep but going. It's taken me 47 years to really, really understand that actually it's my differences that are a source of strength. Mm. And that's really been the journey of my life is just accepting, first accepting myself. Mm. Because I think... There was a time when I used to think about all of these little elements of my identity, not little elements, the fundamental elements of my identity, being brown, being Muslim, being gay, being smaller than everybody in a room, wherever I went. I thought, well, why do I have to have so many, so many differences, so many challenges? And on top of that, people would call me sensitive. You know, they would call me. Can you imagine that being seen as a criticism? I know. Like, what's wrong with you? Well, my people? parents used to actually say that he's so, he's so sensitive. Like that was, the, I think it was a euphemism mm -hmm. for my effeminate 
qualities for my, you know, highly emotional response to certain things mm. or certain feelings. All of this would just weigh on me. And I mean, I, my question I initially asked myself, which I think is natural when you're surrounded by sameness, mm. is to say, well, why me? You know, Interesting. why, why? Why me? Like, why do I have to have all of these things? Yeah, did life sort of take me out and say, okay, you know, you're going to be the unlucky one, sort of. And that's the question I've been trying to answer most of my life, I think. Like, why me? Honestly, the way I know you now, I think you should definitely ask why you? You're so talented, so successful, so wonderful to be around. Why you? Why did life choose that for you? I think now with the life experience I've had, with the learning and unlearning <laughs> that I've done, mm. with some very deep introspection at various stages of my life, I've really managed to connect it to a sense of purpose. Mm. You know, that actually, you know, when I was at McKinsey, they used to look for something called a spike. So you'd get your, you know, at McKinsey, everything was reviewed very, very often. Yeah. Feedback, feedback. Feedback yeah. <laughs> after every meeting, yes. <laughs> after every project, you know, every half year. Great organization, by the way, but, uh, you know. Great quite, organization. Quite, quite extreme in some things. Yeah, great organization <laughs> and an organization I have personally taken a lot from. And I would mm. not be where I am had I not worked there. But they would say we're looking for a spike. Yeah. And a spike was an extremely developed level of talent in one area. Interesting, okay, yeah. So analytics or client relations or um, problem solving mm. or communications. And the big struggle that they had with me was that I didn't have a spike. Yeah, you had several, but they- I had, I had consistently strong or very good performance along a number of different things. Yes. But I didn't have one thing that I was really good at. And I think what I realized eventually, what I have realized eventually, it wasn't any single spike that defined me. I was never gonna be a scientist. I was never gonna be like a Broadway actor. I was never gonna be a partner at McKinsey because it was the unique combination, the unusual and unique combination of multiple skills mm. together that define, it's like, actually it's not a single malt whiskey or a, you know, a pure yeah, thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like a unique cocktail, a unique mix of things. But isn't, isn't that, I mean, for all of our listeners, isn't that the truth about each and every one of us? that the modern world wants you to hyper-specialize so that you're the absolute best person in the world at taking the seed of the avocado out of the avocado, right? And then basically we put you in a kitchen and you just do this 400 million times a day, right? And that's not the reality at all for most of us that we're supposed to be a very unique blend, each and every one of us. And we all are. And the more that we can think about that, ironically, the more we may find the one thing yeah, the that uniqueness. we're singularly yeah. good at. And that's yeah. kind of the extension of where, how I've ended up to where I am yeah. today. Because had I not thought about, had I not, you know, stepped back from my career at McKinsey and started questioning, 
why I was on this path that was only using one side of my brain when I clearly had, you know, propensity and aptitude and passion for creativity as well. Wasn't that single path that had been clearly defined for me that was right for me. I would never have been able to discover this thing that I am now very uniquely positioned to do in the world. You know, it's kind of like inventing your own opportunity, your own single thing that you're good at, not just because you're good at one thing, but because you can bring your full self to it. And the problem with a lot of professional organizations, a lot of educational systems, a lot of parents from uh, certain communities, like immigrant communities especially, is they have a very narrow view of how we can become successful who we are how we can become successful because they force you down this path of yeah, specialization doctor, so early yeah. like you need to specialize you need to specialize and while i do see the benefit and value in specialization i've specialized now right um i think a broad general multifaceted education that exposes you uh, to science and the arts and humanity uh, and communications and even time on stage, which gives you confidence, like all of these things have now conspired to help me be the best I can be at my job. And I wish that for everyone, you know, I wish that for all young people to have that exposure to so many different kinds of education, because I think one will also then discover that you have talents you never knew you Absolutely. had. Like I was really lucky that that teacher my music teacher from grade five told my parents to get my voice trained, right? Because- Because you wouldn't have ever discovered it no. on your own. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not something I, you know, my family, you know, coming from where they came from, it was not something that they would have thought of mm. nurturing in me. And because my parents listened and they've always just wanted me to develop whatever talents and skills I had, you know, there are plenty of things, by the way, that I did that I was not good at, like soccer and accordion and all this kind of stuff that we tried. But if you don't expose young people to so many different things, like how are you going to help them discover what, what they're good at, but also what they love? Yeah. That's, you know? Yeah. That's pure gold, honestly. I mean, that one statement, if, if people listening, I think you should pause and think about this a little bit for your children and for yourself, believe it or not. I mean, it's the idea of how can you find out who you are if you don't explore? I mean, I'm now on this pilgrimage, I call it, where I put everything I own in storage for the last year almost. And and yeah, I'm just moving from place to place, from person to person, meeting, discussing, listening. And I'm supposed to be a fully developed person who's succeeded in life. But there's that exploration. I, I, I have to say, however, it's also in your story, more the choice, not just the exploration, the ability to say, nope, accordion is not going to work and the ability to say that the choir is going to be something I invest in. And if you don't mind me sticking with McKinsey a little, because it was a very successful phase in your life, very good for your development, at least on one side of your personality and brain, but it wasn't a happy place at all. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And like, before I get into the unhappy bits, I should talk about the happy bits because I, <laughs> I never, I not, I never want to dismiss that experience mm. entirely. In mm. fact, it was for me transformational. Yeah, you know, um, not just because having a company like McKinsey on your CV opens doors yeah. that would never have been opened 
yeah. to a person like me before. Because mm. it was a, you know, that combined with Harvard Business School are labels that elite, privileged people mm. understand. And if I walk into the room without those labels, I'm already, yeah. you know, yeah. diminished in some way. When you walk into those rooms with those labels, people at least take you seriously and give mm. you a shot. Mm. So one thing it helped with was a door opening. The other thing was, you know, the people at McKinsey, they were from every possible walk of life. It was incredible. Mm. You know, one of my projects, I worked with an orchestra conductor, <laughs> you know, who ended up at McKinsey somehow. I just met up the other day with a friend of mine, Lisa, and she and I worked in South Africa. She was trained on the floor of automobile manufacturing plants. So yes, there was your typical kind of Oxbridge, Ivy League crop, mm. but there were all sorts of different people. And like you were, I just, the people were so bright and so driven. And in, in that way, I saw a lot of myself in them. You know, like we were all a bunch of insecure overachievers, you know, <laughs> overachieving <laughs> for the sake of achievement. Yeah. But you put a lot of people like that together in one place and you give them feedback constantly mm -hmm. on where they fall short. Yeah. And you set these impossible goals that are very narrow around how they should act, how they should behave, how they should communicate. In fact, how they should dress, you know, how they should interact with clients. And suddenly you take this very, very disparate, diverse group of people and you start to make them all the same. Hmm. And when I look back at McKinsey now, I think the most interesting people there were the people who were right at the beginning of their McKinsey career, the analysts and the associates, hmm. the ones who hadn't yet gone through the, mill. the factory yeah. that is McKinsey. Hmm. Because once people started going up, they all started to talk the same and walk the same and look the same and act the same because that's what it take. That's what it took to be successful there. Mm. The only other group that had the same level of joy and freedom and kind of authenticity as the analysts and the associates were the very, very, very senior partners who had already gone through the whole system and had so much power and position at McKinsey. By that stage, they could revert back to being who they were. But for everyone in the middle... If they remembered who they were. Huh? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of them had, you know, I was very lucky to interact with a lot of these, you know, senior directors at McKinsey and they were amazing. But I think for me personally, having fought for most of my life to find comfort in being myself being in a place which was constantly encoded and sometimes uncoded very direct ways to not be myself eventually came with a lot of pain. You know, it came with suffering in silence and not really understanding why I was suffering. And that is like a really strange feeling for a 27 or 28 year old person. You know, like you don't, And, you know, by that stage of my life, I had ticked off all these really important boxes, education and achievements and Titan Dean's and List job. and all that. And, and then it came later with all those other things that you mentioned. You know, basically as what you said at the beginning is it doesn't matter because it doesn't. Because you can tick off all of those boxes. But if you don't feel good, 
in yourself and you're in an environment which doesn't enable you to be yourself, then that really, you know, that really comes with a lot of, you know, silent suffering. And I did, I suffered in silence for a long time. And I didn't really feel like I had people to talk to there about the way I was feeling, yeah. you know, like, and that was, that was really hard. And um, yeah, so, you know, at some point it got so bad. You know, I went to uh, India in December of uh, 2004 and I saw my parents there. We met up in India and my, my mom took one look at me and she said, something's wrong. What's wrong? Mm. You know, mother always knows. And I think I just broke down. I said, I just, yeah, I'm just not happy. And um, at the time I was also struggling with my identity from yeah. a sexual to, standpoint. To you know, like was. I was, I was struggling having come through HBS during 9-11. Did you? Yeah. Now that must be yeah. very isolating for a Muslim brown person. Yeah, it was probably, that was a defining moment. Was it? Yeah, for me as well, actually. It was a real defining moment because you'd think, I mean, we can talk about that in a minute, but l let me just finish this thought on McKinsey, which was, you know, I just felt at this stage, I needed to take some time off. So yeah, that's what I did. I went and I went and took some time. But big, 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 big choice, huh? big decision. It's like, you know, most people will say, okay, you know, I'm 27, 28, I'm in McKinsey, I'm successful, I'm intelligent. That means I'm gonna eventually be a millionaire, it's fine, right? Who stops and says, but I'm not happy? Who cares about happy in that state? Yeah, you know, it's, I consider that to be a reflection of both how low I was feeling, mm. it felt like mm. the only option because I couldn't go on. Mm. It was that bad. I subsequently went on a silent retreat in, um, which we talked about, which we referred to at the beginning in South Africa. And on the way, I did a road trip by myself on the garden route to kind of prepare myself for this mm. Vipassana meditation. And one of my McKinsey colleagues from a project I worked on in Johannesburg, Halvar Matisson. Halvar, if you're listening, this is like a really important story about your dad. You know, Halvar's dad and I sat down and had dinner one day at their home in Nysna because Halvar said to me, if you're going to go on the garden route, why don't you stop in and meet up with my dad mm -hmm. you know, and stay at my family home where I grew up. Mm. So I went and stopped and I met with Mr. Matisse for dinner and he was lovely. And I think he was probably well into his 60s at this stage. And he said to me, he said, Imran, why are you here? Like, what are you, what are you doing? And I told him this story that I was feeling really unhappy and I wasn't sure where my life was heading and I like achieved all this stuff and it just didn't, it didn't deliver any real fulfillment. And, you know, he paused and he said to Imran, he's like, you're really, really lucky. Hmm. You're lucky you're having this conversation with yourself at this age. Mm. Because... I didn't have that conversation with myself until just a few years ago. Wow. And most of us don't. Yeah. But if you're having that conversation with yourself now, that's really, you're really lucky that you've, you've taken the time to do that. And you're in a situation where you have the privilege and opportunity to actually do that. So yeah. I think you're on a good journey. 
You know, he kind of, and along this journey, like throughout my life, well, now I realize that there were these little moments where people just nudged me a little bit sure, forward yeah, and just, yeah. okay, it's going to be fine. Like, you know, I am, I'm on the right path, even though it's a path that's hard and it's not, it's not a straight path. In some ways it can be a very circuitous path, but yeah, I was lucky that I stopped and had that conversation with myself back then. That's, I, I am going to have to stop here for a second because I think this is said in a way, I mean, a lot of people will tell you, you know, you have to reflect and see where your life is going and so on. To position it as lucky, because honestly, to be able to break the mold when you're 27, 28, and then start again, is definitely a lot easier than it is when you're 37, 38, a lot easier than it is when you're 47, 48, right? But I think what caught my attention is the idea of lucky. Yes, very lucky, but it's not the only way to have that conversation, that people listening should probably be lucky by spending the time with themselves and actually thinking. Thinking, what is it that I want to be in life? What is it that's causing me suffering? What is it that's causing me happiness and fulfillment? And maybe gradually moving there. So if you would go back, would you say that the, the main reason why you chose to change was was it happiness? Was it the fact that you didn't fit in? You didn't feel that this was you? Was it, what was it? What, what makes you change, give away a millionaire path? It was seeking purpose. Purpose. And there's no purpose in consulting, did you think? Not for me. Not for me is a key word. Yeah. Right? Maybe there are for, you know, there is for other people and a lot of people have very fulfilling, successful careers as management consultants because it's a good fit for them. It wasn't a good fit for me. And it was less about me fitting in there. I'm using the words fit for me because I needed to create a life, an opportunity, um, a career that fits me, as opposed to spending all those previous years trying to fit myself around the opportunities that other people thought were for me. And so it was that it, it just, that whole, that whole moment just rewired the way I was thinking about my life, which is, I am who I am. I am all of these things. I need to accept that these are, these are the things that define me and make me who I am. And if they are those things that define me and make me who I am, then I need to take those things and figure out how to make a life that fits what I want. That is pure wisdom. Honestly, the way you just said it, that is pure wisdom, pure wisdom that it's not us trying to fit in life. It's us trying to fit life to us. That's pure wisdom. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for having had that moment of clarity and moment of acceptance, because I think up until that point, I think I spent a lot of my life just trying to kind of fit in or blend in or like try to fit you know, it was like, how does the the little brown kid fit into this elementary school environment where no one was like him? How does this person who's just in so many ways got his own quirks? And like, I just had to accept all of that. You know, if I, and if I accept it, that's the first step. And then really understand that it's a source of strength. It's a strength, yeah. I don't know if I, if I should, I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, a lot of pain, though, going through all of this. 
Do you think pain is necessary to make those changes? I wish it wasn't. Mm. So that's a yes. I mean, for me, that the trauma that came with some of those experiences, they were defining moments. They were the things, and I think if we all think back in our lives to those moments that really changed us, often they're moments of extreme discomfort. Agony, yeah. I know that for certain. And so as painful as some of that stuff was, I wouldn't change any of it. I wouldn't, because it, it makes me who I am, you know? And like, I won't, I don't want to change anything. It's funny because also when you, when you are here now and you think about those moments of pain, yeah, my eye tears up, you know, your heart quenches a little, but it's not that painful anymore. Pain has that interesting character of, of course, unless as you say, it's a trauma, right? It just fades away. Hardship eventually goes away. Yeah. And it's, you know, one of the fundamental things that really helped me understand that point was in Vipassana meditation, which for those of you, you know, listening and watching don't know, is this like 10 day silent meditation. And the, the, the fundamental lesson that you're meant to take away from that is to not crave and get addicted to good things, to good feelings, to the good sensations because they will pass and they'll go away. Mm. And to not reject or react or respond to negative feelings, because they will also go away, you know? And so like, if you have, you know, the, the main word they kept using, it was equanimity, remain equanimous. All good things and bad things come and go. Yeah. And there will be pain and you just observe that pain. I keep this with me so much now. Like if I have a day when I'm feeling that, I just know, okay, just an emotion, it will pass. I'm just gonna observe it. I know how my body feels when I have those emotions. I've become so in touch with just the sensations in my body. Like when I was young, I used to get this like knot in my stomach all the time before a test or when I was nervous, I couldn't eat. Like I still get those knots. Now I know it's just something that comes when I have a certain emotion in me and I just have to observe it and we'll go. And likewise, when everything is hunky-dory, when everything is amazing, I observe it and I say, I'm grateful for it, but I know that can pass too. Why live then? Because it's all of those emotions that, you know, that's observing those emotions is life, no? It's the, if you don't know the depths of your emotions, you can't appreciate the heights either, you know? And like, that's, that's the richness of life for me. Yeah. Because if we all, if we all remain numb all the time to everything, there is no life. So I'm not saying or advocating that we don't feel emotions. We're all going to feel emotions. I feel many emotions in a single day, you know? <laughs> What I'm saying is we just need to recognize those emotions as temporary because the situations we're in are always also temporary. Yeah. You know, I've been uh, revisiting 
in silence. So I wasn't on a Vipassana, I was basically alone. And that meant that I connected with lots of things that I absolutely love. And one of which, I know it sounds weird to love it, but I love applied mathematics. And so I was revisiting a lot of the complex stuff of game theory that when you don't use the stuff that you don't use often, so you forget. And I love my math. And so one of the things that really hit me was the reality that life in game theory basically is an infinite game. There is no winning and no losing it. It's basically all about the gameplay itself, the engagement, the emotion, the bit of challenge, the bit of joy, the wonderful person you get to connect to and then you get to miss. And I think that way of living without really wanting the person to stay without really worrying when they go, without really attaching too much to the good or the bad, that's the gameplay. That's what true gamers do, right? The true gamers don't celebrate the amazing shots because there will be another enemy showing up in a minute and they don't curse themselves, their lives when, when, a, when a difficult enemy shows up because they know there will be a good shot in a minute, right? And I think that's a very joyful way to go through life that is not really anchored in the peaks of yay and then uh, right this is a very different way of, of finding joy can we go back to 9-11 i'm actually quite curious around that i, I my my story is i had a meeting in uh, seattle i was at microsoft at the time and you know it was an important meeting for my career and i had to struggle with the idea of showing up as a middle eastern man in the u.s after 9-11 and, and I have to admit between the heightened emotions, of course, justifiably at the time, it was quite difficult. That first encounter back with America, if you want, you were at HBS at Harvard Business School at the time and you said it was a defining moment. What happened? Well, it was my second year. It was September, obviously. <laughs> and by that point at HBS, I had found my crew, mm. you know, after a, they call the first year at HBS kind of a boot camp, right? They yes. basically like build you up and then they break you down and then they build you up again to like, yeah. you know, and so I'd already gone through that journey. I'd done my summer internship at McKinsey, which is not at all what I wanted to do because I'd already been a management consultant and I, we were living through the aftermath of the dot-com bubble and jobs were few and far between and the economy was basically in the shitter. Uh, and I started my second year feeling like, okay, like if I, if I have to go back to management consulting, I'll go back to management consulting. And I started the year feeling great. And then of course, the morning of September 11th, I lived in a old rickety house with three other guys, one, an Indian guy, who grew up in the Philippines, one, an Ethiopian guy who grew up in Chicago, and one, a guy named Alex who grew up in the US, white guy. So a quite like diverse household. And all of a sudden in the morning, my flatmate, Barakat, came into my room and said, you know, turn on the TV. And Barakat and I just watched on TV as everything was happening. And like, like everybody, we were just stunned. And we had, you know, he and I both had a class that morning and we were going to drive over to campus. And 
as soon as we got to campus, it became pretty, pretty clear that this was like a really serious terrorist attack and an event that was really going to change everything. You know, I knew it. And I, I felt this sinking feeling in my stomach because being Muslim and watching attacks like that happen that eventually came out that being, being done in the name of Islam comes with a bunch of mixed emotions that are very hard to process. And soon we started to hear reports on campus of Muslim students being targeted at Harvard Business School, the most ignorant things being said in the classroom yeah. with Muslim students being targeted in the classroom, the most abhorrent Islamophobic, uninformed comments made in one of the inst greatest institutions of higher learning on the planet. Yeah. And it was shocking. Yeah. I was shocked. So together with some of the other Muslim students on campus, who by the way, came from everywhere. They came from Egypt, they came from Kuwait, they came from Saudi Arabia, they came from Canada and the US, they came from everywhere. We were the second year students and we were particularly worried about the first years because there were students from all of those countries who were spending their first few weeks in the United States yeah. at HBS, which was supposed to be like a defining moment of their career. And we were finding out that there were these comments being made, that they were being targeted. So we brought the community of Muslim students together very soon after the attacks happened, after we started hearing these reports. And the message from us, the second years to the first years was that the reason we have a community as diverse as the one at HBS with people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of nationalities, indeed all sorts of religions is because we're here to educate each other. We come from these backgrounds. So we said, it is your responsibility. It is our responsibility that if these incidents happen in the classroom, that we need to take the opportunity to educate people. That Islam is not a religion of hate. That it is not a religion that condones this kind of violence. And that the people doing this in the name of Islam are not acting in accordance with Islam. And the students, you know, we all kind of left that evening and then classes ended up being canceled because of course the situation worsened. There was a lot of fear of more attacks. There was so many links between HBS and the World Trade Center. Obviously, so many people had worked in that building. They had former colleagues in that building. They had family members that worked in that building. Like as the week went by, it became more and more clear just how intertwined the institution of Harvard Business School and the physicality of the World Trade Center were. And our first class, my first class back was on a Monday morning, I think. And it was called The Moral Leader. Oh, appropriate. And in that class, The Moral Leader, we had the responsibility to read a book or a case study every week where a leader, not just a business leader, it could even be a political leader or another kind of important leader was faced with a moral dilemma about what to do. Mm. And I forget what the required reading was for that class. All I remember is that I got to that class and the professor said, a lot of you have requested that 
instead of doing the required case study for the day that we talk about what's happening in the world. And so he opens up this conversation and soon enough, it wasn't me specifically that was targeted. It was Muslims. Someone raised their hand and said something like, my friend in my section, he's Muslim, he's from Pakistan. I'm afraid he's going to blow me up. And then another classmate who was actually in my section raised his hand and said, well, I'm not surprised this happened. Like Islam teaches people if they kill Jews, they'll go to heaven. And I, I could feel myself trembling. Yeah. And by the way, Mo, I should say that I am not by any means a devout yeah. practicing Muslim who prays five times a day or, you know, observes the religion in a way that many, you know, more kind of practicing Muslims might. But being Muslim has been a big part of my identity, you know, since I was born. I'm an Ismaili Muslim, a Shia Ismaili Muslim. I grew up in the faith. We went to mosque, our Jamaat Khana every Friday. It's that community of people who raised me. My parents were leaders in that community. My father sat on the, the local council. Like these were like, these were defining parts of who I am. Yeah. And I got so upset. Of course. That I walked out of the room. It's once again rejecting your identity, rejecting who you are, attacking it. I just it. couldn't believe it. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And before I'd walked out, I had like looked around the room and I realized I was the only Muslim in that room of 120 students. Mm. And I was pacing in the hallway outside and I, I just, my heart was beating so fast. And then I remembered what I'd said to those first-year students a few days earlier. That it's about educating. And so I marched back into that room. Oh, no, did you? I marched back into that room, and everyone's hands who were up went down. And I raised my hand. Because mm. when I left, everyone noticed that I left. It wasn't a quiet exit. I mean, it's very hard to exit the classroom without everyone noticing. And the professor called on me, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but I did my best to educate people. And I turned to the individuals who had made those comments specifically and said how hurtful and misinformed that they were. And that at a time like this, when the world is experiencing a tragic terrorist attack, an incomprehensible, unconscionable act of violence against innocent people, done in the name of a religion that would never condone, where like 99.999% of Muslims would never condone such an act, for you to make such uninformed comments at an institution like Harvard Business School is just the most disappointing thing. And for those of us who are Muslim on campus, feeling a whole other sense of emotion, yeah, that this was, this was a very complicated thing to live through. But the one thing that you could be sure of is that we were not happy or in any way supportive of what was what was happening and that we were feeling pain and and a sense of like strange shame to be to be associated with this kind of violence that you know I was just, I was said it's not it's not acceptable for you to make those comments but i mean people were emotional i think it's fair to assume that everyone every emotion was raging at the time it was super emotional mm -hmm. but i'm telling you mo that if 
for whatever reason, 9-11 happened now. There is so much more conversation around inclusion and diversity and making sure that the words we use, the things we say, are respectful of the people around us. Like, you know, 20 years ago, this was not at all the case. There was no conversation happening. Absolutely. There was, but, you know, there was media that was making the emotions more raging, basically. Of course. And it yes. was, you know, it was, I understand why it happened. And I don't hold it against those people today. Like, I understand what happened. But my, the reason this was a defining moment for me is because that I think that's, you know, Harvard Business School says it trains leaders who are going to change the world. Mm. That's the mission of the Harvard Business School. And for me, real leadership requires sitting in that discomfort and speaking up, you know? And then after I finished speaking, the classroom burst into applause. Uh, and for the rest of the day at that house that I yes. lived at with those three other guys, it was like a stream of people just coming in to check on me. Isn't that beautiful? It was amazing. And the community came together and, you know, it just, it was very affirming for me. And it helped me understand that as difficult and painful and hard as it was, it would have been easier for me to walk out. Mm. My responsibility in that moment as a member of that community was to speak up. But it's also so beautiful that you realize that humans, when they make such harsh, extreme judgments, it's because they haven't heard the other side. They haven't connected. I mean, if you don't mind me opening this topic, gay Muslim, publicly is, I mean, I don't think Islam is more against LGBTQ more than any other religion. I think the indoctrination of religions over the years has sort of been conformative in a way. It's like, we tell you what to do, you have to do it. And I think every religion follows that path in a way. But it's quite interesting how public you are about it. And I have to say, I'm super proud of that, that a person can say, look, I make my choices and, you know, I say that with love and respect and it's something that I want to be proud of, of who I am. I, I don't want to drop one to be the other. I don't want to hide one to be the other. I think that's really beautiful. And it's because I have privilege because there's so many gay Muslims who can't. So I'll tell you a story. I recently went to Kuwait. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was there for a speaking engagement and without even being self-conscious about it, when I was being asked some questions on the stage, I referenced my partner, uh, Nick Hill, mm -hmm. who is amazing. Did you hear that, Nick? <laughs> and afterwards, two people came up to me and I want to protect their confidentiality and identity. So I'm going to use gender neutral pronouns and kind of keep it as confidential as I can. But two people came up to me and eventually after a bit of dialogue told me that they identified as gay and that they'd never in their life Been living to. in Kuwait yeah. heard anyone in a public discourse be able to say that be able to talk about their full identity. And I realized that came with privilege because of who I am, because of where I live, because of the community of people around me 
because of I have a family that supported me. And so most Muslims who are gay can't talk about it publicly. Their families won't accept them. Their communities won't accept them. And in fact, some of their countries will jail them or prosecute them or target them for their sexual identity. Oh, that's if the, if the people don't attack them. Exactly. And so I think about it as coming from a place of privilege because I have the ability to do so. And if I'm really honest, for a long time, I didn't mm. because I was worried about how my own community, my the Ismaili community would react, the messages that would be sent to my parents, the things that would be said. And I didn't want my parents. How did they react? I mean, ultimately, it's a lot to take in, you know, for any parent, because it's, you know, that's a defining shift in the, in the relationship between a parent and a child. Finally, I went back last October and I got a couple of inbound requests from the community to give a talk at this conference that they do. And I was a little puzzled because I gave a talk at that conference a few years ago. And the conference this year was happening, for, that year was happening virtually because it wasn't possible to do it physically. So I went back to them and said, I'm happy to do a talk. But if I do a talk, I've already talked to you about how I built the business of fashion and given you my entrepreneurial journey. Now I want to talk to you about my personal journey. And I want to talk about the rights of queer people in our community because it's really important to me that we have these conversations. And I know, again, because of my privilege, because of where I sit, that I can lead this conversation. I can, I can open up this conversation in my own community, which still makes people who are LGBTQ feel unaccepted, feel marginalized, feel rejected. And that's not fair. And I didn't tell my mom that I was doing a talk on this topic. She knew I was doing some kind of talk. So I went and recorded this talk. And then a few weeks later when the talk aired, as expected, my mom started getting messages from people and they were incredible messages of support. Support, I love that. And I think that made me really proud. And my mom asked to see a link to the talk and I sent it to her and she watched it. And I think, you know, that was like a really amazing moment for me and my mom. You know, and I think, Mo, like the, the kind of regular theme that I, I think about as I, as I discuss all of these things with you and it's just kind of coming into my head now is that, you know, we, we were talking about purpose before, you know, like this is my purpose. My purpose comes from having these multiple intersectional identities and helping different communities understand and accept that part of me that they rejected, you know, that part of me that they didn't understand. And the more that I can do that now, the more I'm really sitting in who I am and my, and my purpose and my truth and who I am and why I'm here. And that, that is really like, that is the best so feeling. This is so powerful. This is really, in my view, one of the things that the world needs most. The idea of, can we please just let everyone be? I mean, I think, I think the, the queer community started the conversation because they were so oppressed for so many years. 
but can we just be who we want to be, period, right? Can we just be allowed to be who we are inside without all of the judgment, all the pushing, all of the molding, right? Can someone just say, hey, I am this and that at the same time seems paradoxical, but I am. I am that and this at the same time, and this is who I am and it makes me special. And can everyone else celebrate? I can, can humanity stop saying, if you're not like me, you're wrong. And I think that your role you're playing so well. Because that's judgment. I mean, the thing is, is that there's so much judgment. Absolutely. And so many assumptions. And so much limitation on humans because of that judgment. Everyone needs to fit within that mold that you seem to have been trying to break out of your entire life. Yeah, and like what I said earlier, I realized actually I need to make the mold mm -hmm. around me. Yeah. The mold yeah. should not be about molding around what the world expects of you. The mold should be to create, be built around you. And mine would be a very small, very like tiny package <laughs> mold, but it's a but mold, it's, my mold. it's a my mold, it's made for me, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's your fashion, it's your outfit, it's your, it's the way you represent yourself to life. I think that's really the core of this conversation and the core of what I love about what you stand for is that idea of, hey, you know, there is some kind of outfit Mm, that fits me. Exactly. And going back to that very first question that you asked me, like why fashion? Mm. And why did, why was I so drawn to fashion? You know, I used to watch this TV show growing up called The Fashion File. It was on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation every Saturday. And it was hosted by this guy named Tim Blanks. Mm. And every week, Tim would be in a different city, Milan, Paris, London, New York. Ooh. And there would be all of these amazing characters. Mm -hmm. And they were so different. And they were so expressive with who they were. And they used fashion as a way of just being themselves. And this little boy in Calgary, like eight or nine years old, watching Fashion File. I think I saw that show and I was like, I love this. And by the way, Tim Blanks, that guy, he now works with me. No way. At BOF, uh -huh. probably the most respected fashion critic in the world. And so many people's fashion hero, not just mine. But I think about it and like, I think working in the fashion industry, I think that's why I was so drawn to it was that I could make a mold of who I am, you know, and use fashion ex to express who I am in a way that I wasn't able to do anywhere else in my life. And maybe that's why I was so drawn to it. How, th how did you discover that though? How, how, how do you move from that track of, I am a consultant who is hyper left-brained, all, everything's analytical. You know, you, you said there was that moment of pain that takes you out of that place, but how do you discover the other place? How do you find out? Such a good question. And I, you know, young people ask me this a lot because I say- like, I'm young, I'm young. Yeah. <laughs> um, they say, how do I know what my passion is? Yeah. And I always say, go back to the things you were drawn to 
As a child. When you were a child. Go back to the things that you were drawn to. Before the restrictions. Before anyone told you what you should Interesting. do. Interesting. Before there were expectations placed on you. Before you even formed judgments about what was a legitimate career or an illegitimate or a not appropriate career. Before any of society's expectations limited the possibilities of you to see what you really love. Mm. And I think back to this all the time now because I watched that show like forever and I loved it. And I can't, I couldn't, I can't even explain to you now exactly why I loved it, but I did. Mm. And the problem was, it was like fashion was so far away from, from like, what you were supposed to be. Yeah. Physically, metaphorically, intellectually, culturally. You know, it was just so far away from who I was growing up as. It seemed impossible. Yeah. It seemed absolutely impossible. Like there's no way. It didn't even, actually, it didn't even occur to me that it was an option. It was so far away. Yeah. But it is what you loved as a child. It was what I what I was drawn to viscerally as a child for re for reasons I can't explain because it's instinctive, yeah. and for some people that might be applied mathematics. For some people that might be, you know, something else. Yeah. But there are things we're drawn to. Like we just need to listen to that feeling. Oh, that's the biggest task ever to switch off that thing up there and switch on that thing in your chest, you know, you, to, to really listen to the feeling without the restrictions. That's the toughest thing ever. I am on time. Do you have 10 more minutes? Sure. Yeah, this is going so well. <laughs> okay, so so even when, when it comes to fashion, Imran, I, I find that when you came to the industry, you just, you didn't do what everyone else did. Because I have to say, 2007, like who wants another fashion? reporter or magazine or, you know, blog or whatever, who, who wants any of that? And there were quite a few of them already, right? But I think what you did is you said, this industry needs to change. This industry needed a different perspective. The business of fashion needed to be viewed differently. Share a tiny bit about that. What needed to change? What do you think still needs to change? I, I love just for people who don't know the Voices conference that you hold every year, which is theoretically supposed to be talking about fashion, but you know, you get all kinds of amazing speakers to talk about so many other things. And I, I don't think your approach applies only to fashion. It applies almost to every industry, but I, why? What, what did you do differently? So if I'm honest with you, it's only in hindsight that I really understood that the industry would benefit from a different voice, mm. a different perspective. Mm. At the beginning, it was what I knew. Like it was instinctual, right? By that stage, and this is why I by no means regret the left brain training analysis yeah. that I had yeah. for over a decade in university and in business school and as a management consultant, my brain had been professionally trained by this experience to try to understand complex problems and solve them, mm. to recognize patterns 
in large amounts of quantitative, qualitative data and draw out insights to approach situations with open-ended questions that would elicit a wide range of responses that could help provide answers. That's what management consultants do. And so when I left McKinsey ultimately after that Vipassana retreat, my first foray into fashion was actually an unmitigated failure. Like I went and started an incubator for young fashion designers with a few hundred thousand pounds of funding and it lasted eight months. It didn't work. That The idea was not developed enough. It was um, maybe a, a bit ahead of its time and I just didn't have the skills to execute it. Yeah. But during that year, because all of my friends and family were so interested in this leap that I'd made from McKinsey into fashion, I'd met a few bloggers. I didn't even know what a blog was. I thought it was a diary. And thought, well, why, why not just document I was, I mean, if I could tell you the feeling I had, like, all, I was going from this, like, really clinical corporate environment in German Street with, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of people who were made to speak and sound and act the same. And all of a sudden, I was, like, walking in this world where, like, that world, was that, world that I saw on television, yeah. from so far away, I was in it. And yeah, I was like maybe sneaking in or like at the back, yeah. like watching from the corner because like a friend had snuck me in. Yeah. I, I found it so stimulating, visually stimulating. And I just started taking pictures. I had this big SLR, it was like pre-iPhone, right? So I started taking like an SLR camera to these shows and I'd always be very much at the back. So I'd have these like big zoom lenses to try to get as close up as I could. And I just started uploading those photos and like writing stuff down. And like what I knew to write was analytical. Like I wasn't a lyrical, poetic writer. And this, this blog was for my friends and family and it was behind a password. So when my company failed, I took the password off that blog. Oof. And all of a sudden anyone could meet it. Yeah. And I created a banner in PowerPoint, <laughs> did a screenshot, took that banner, called it the business of fashion. It was all black and white, which was our, to this day is like part of our core branding. I wanted it to look like a serious considered newspaper. So I took a newspaper kind of aesthetic and just started writing. And what was amazing, Mo is like in 2007, Blogs were like the first form of social media. Correct. Yeah. You know, and instantly, almost magically, I started getting comments from all over the world. And, you know, people talk about community a lot now, but BOF was shaped and built by this community because they would tell me what they liked. They would tell me what they wanted more of. They would ask questions. I, and I would develop the things that I would write based on the feedback that was coming through on the comments. It was mm. kind of amazing. Mm. And soon, you know, back in that time, 
Every time I wrote an article, a newsletter automatically got sent to anybody who was on her subscription list. So I think that newsletter launched late January 2007. Yeah. And I was writing maybe one or two articles a week. And people would forward that exactly. newsletter around. Yeah. And now we all think of the email newsletters and it's like part of like the media landscape. But back in 2007, there weren't a lot of email newsletters. Yeah. And I think the timing, you know, in two, June 2007, the first iPhone launched. A few months later, Twitter and Facebook and social media channels really started to hit the mainstream and like people would take the articles I wrote and they'd share them on these social channels and it just, it just spread. So like, I didn't know at the beginning what I was building. It's only now that I know that yes, like if you look at the media landscape in fashion back then, it was very much an echo chamber mm. of they, fashion they, they, people yeah. talking to Talk, fashion exactly. people about fashion. Yeah. And I was this outsider mm. who didn't really know that much about fashion, let alone the fashion business. But because of the training I had, every person I'd meet, I'd ask them questions, I would learn. I had some incredible friends who opened doors for me that probably never would have opened otherwise, letting me into a show or sneaking me backstage somewhere so I could really start to see. And I started developing a map of how this whole industry worked. It was like a mental map. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to create these slides at McKinsey with these like value chain charts. I was basically piecing together how everything worked to the point that I realized that, wow, this industry that not only is so insular, the way it was reported on is like there was a fashion business publication like Draper's that was focused on the UK and there was one in, the, one in France called the Journal du Textile and there was a counterpart in Germany and a counterpart in the US and a counterpart in Australia and like, I was already speaking to a global audience for myself at the very beginning. So I was like, okay, not only is this perspective that I have different because everyone else is just talking about the same things. I'm talking about the impact of technology and changing social values and globalization. But also I'm thinking about as this global industry. Yeah. But all of that came through learning. And then the other thing is like, you know, I wasn't a trained writer or journalist, like I was also learning how to do that, like how to pitch a story, how to like edit, you know, how to like create the right image selection. And it was amazing. It was like this obsession. And I do it. And and during the day I was earning my living as a consultant because I I couldn't make money from this blog. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't about building a company. It was just an obsession. I was obsessed with it. Like I was obsessed with my Smurf collection or my stamp <laughs> collection, you yeah. know, like as a kid, like I you know, was putting these things together and like making it look nice and, you know, making it organized. So organizing information, organizing creative output, making sense of things. It's always been part of, you know, this, you know, going back to like what you did when you were a kid, that's what I did. I used to like take my Smurfs and organize them on a shelf and like make these little displays like every month. And then my stamp collection was all organized by color and by country and by like, that's what I've always done. You know, I was just taking the things that I'd like to do when I was a kid and I was doing them using new technologies that enabled me to reach this global community that had never really been brought together before. I, I, I find this by the way, at the core of every big success story, a sense of obsession. It's like, you know what? I can pay to do this if I have to. It's not about actually building something that pays me. 
It's just, can, can I please have the time to do a little more of this? I just love exactly. it. Exactly. It's like, yeah. what do you want to do in your free time? Yeah. <laughs> That's a very you interesting know, definition of what you want to do with your life, yeah? And I was doing it all the time to like two in the morning, obsessing about the way things looked. Like, mm. And there was no... There was no goal to build it into a company. That only happened years later when investors started approaching me. So, yeah, it was, you know, I wish I had thought in my room, like, oh, there's a gap in the market. You know, this is how I built that first business, you know. Mm. It didn't work. And that, you, these stories you hear about people building a business plan and seeing a gap in the market. And, like, and by the way, the media industry is not an easy, easy industry. You know, like, this is not like, you know, this is not an industry that's, eminently profitable even right now you know it's like a very tough industry so like if i was really sitting with my mckinsey head saying which industry am i going to go into <laughs> wouldn't be that media is hard you know and we've worked very very hard to build a sustainable business but it's not easy so yeah that's how it happened if i summarize your life story and maybe i'll, I'll close with this it's a story of trauma and pain frequently but it's a story of a search for happiness you really never accepted to live a, a life that wasn't happy you, you needed to be who you are and i would make a slight adjustment to that it was a search for purpose purpose and by f aligning your talent your skills and your passion with purpose that's what brings you happiness say that again by aligning it's you, I mean I really feel this I feel like if you can figure out what your talents and skills are and how you can align that with the things you're passionate about that helps you discover your purpose and when you have clarity around your purpose that's what brings you happiness like it's, and it's happiness actually doesn't it's like fulfillment it's like what I, my, my life matters. My work matters. I matter. Interesting. That was going to be the question I was going to ask. Your secret to happiness is find your skills and talents, align them with your passions, align them with your purpose, what you want to achieve, what you want to impact in life. Combine that with some hard work, discipline, dedication, and obsession. Because it, it, you know, you can do all of those things. If, you know, it's not going to land in your lap. Like this, it takes work. Yeah, and combine all of those together, and you end up with happiness. I think. So. Well, that's been my experience. I don't know if it works for everybody, but that's. I think it does. I think that. I, I think. I think you, the way you say, "I matter," even if just for my sister and my best friend, right? I think that's something that many of us miss in life. Many who go to the corporate world or to work or to, you know, what I mean, we have to work to live. It's, it's understood, but it's that missing bit of I matter. I, I'm making a tiny difference. And, and often even without aligning to your skills and talents, without aligning to your obsession, honestly, even if your work can make a difference, it's very difficult to see that difference. I love you dearly. I think you're such an incredible human being, like truly and honestly an example. 
And truly and honestly, an example, not just because of your successes and titles, not because of your strengths, because of your fragility, vulnerability, and the challenges, the story that got you there, makes you one of a kind, but as I said at the beginning, makes you every one of us. It's so beautiful to be with. Thank you for asking me those questions, because I think sometimes in life when we see and observe success of others from the outside, it comes with all of those things that you described at the beginning. It's like these lists or these awards or these recognitions. And sure, those things are, you know, really nice to have, but I think it's the, like, the struggle behind it, the hard work behind it, you know, the human behind it that they don't tell in the media very often. Yeah. You know, and it's nice to be asked those questions because I, I think that one thing that I hope is that others can see that they can do it too. You know, like it's possible for anybody. Yeah. And it's possible only when you believe that you have the right to be who you are. Imran, I'm really, really grateful. I'm also very grateful to all of you. As always, you give me the chance to be with the most incredible people. Lock them in a room and chat. Like without <laughs> interruptions in the furthest end of East London. And, uh, and it's, uh, I, I really wanted everyone to listen to this conversation because it is a conversation where we're saying, some of the challenges that you go through are there to remind you that there are other places for you in life. Some of the joys that you went through as a child probably are where your passion resides. And perhaps it's that conversation with yourself. It's that ability to say, I will reject being where I'm supposed to be fitting in. I will reject acceptance from life by being someone who I'm not. I will be who I am. And when I am that person, then I will find a mold. I will build a mold where life will fit me rather than me being forced to fit life. An incredible wisdom. I thank you very much for giving me the chance to meet such amazing people. If you've liked this conversation, please spread it tell others, rate it five stars, as I always ask you to do. And yeah, give us a chance on YouTube. If you haven't watched the podcast on video, when you're there, subscribe or do whatever it is that people do on social media and get in touch. I love when you send me comments and suggestions and recommendations of guests and topics and so on. Whatever it is that you do this week, I know that you're going to be busy you're probably not going to be busier than Imran. And he still took four hours of his day to come and slow down and have this conversation with me. So I remind you that it doesn't really matter how busy uh, you are. There's always a tiny bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.